we're going through a series this summer that we're calling Unstuck. And it's a series really where we're just taking a look at common challenges that all of us face. Um, but the good news is uh, we, get to, we don't have to face them alone. We all face challenges. That's the bad news. Um, and the, but the good news is we don't have to face them alone. We can have hope through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you know me, you know that I am a very optimistic person. I'm a person that uh, tends to see things very optimistically. Um, and when I see something, I think to myself, wow, it's all going to be great. My wife, on the other hand, she sees things and she's like, no, it's not always going to be great. And we're a great balance for each other because I tend to be an optimist and it's gotten me in trouble many times. You can ask her. Um, she's got stories, okay? Um, but on the other hand, she's a great balance to me because she sees things realistically. So together we make a good co- pair, a good combination. Uh, but the, the, the fact of the matter is I have learned from walking with my wife who sees things very realistically and then also just walking through life and having to hit things and go, wow. That didn't work out the way that I thought it was going to work out. Is no matter how optimistic I can be, the reality is there are still challenges that we face, still things that we come up against that don't always work out the way that we want them to. That's just the reality. And if I told you anything other than that, I wouldn't be loving because I wouldn't be telling you the truth. The The truth is we all face real challenges, real struggles, and they can cause us to feel stuck. But the truth alongside of that is that when we feel stuck, when we hit those challenges, it is a grand opportunity for us to say, I want to move forward, but not on my own. I, need to, I want to move forward with Jesus. And that's the grand opportunity that we have before us, for us when we hit challenges, when we hit crises that are, that, are, that are hard, that are difficult, that create pain, that create anxiety, that are great um, hurt in, in lots of different arenas. We have the opportunity in those moments to say, I can stay stuck trying to do it on my own, or I can say, Jesus, I need your help, and I want to walk forward with you. And the good news is Jesus promises to walk with us in the midst of the challenges that we face, and we so desperately need that. In fact, the the challenge that we're going to look at today, we desperately need God's help because we're going to be talking about the challenge of shame this morning, the challenge of shame. And so here's what I want to do. What I want to do is I want to read a passage for you that really addresses this subject. And then after that, what I want to do is just stop for a moment and talk about shame just to kind of give some, provide some framework for just the topic and the subject itself. And then we're going to come back to the passage and see how that works out and, and really what we can glean and apply from God's Word today. So what I'd like to do is just invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. That's the passage that we're going to be looking at. Luke chapter 7. If you, didn't, if you don't have your Bible, hopefully you receive that handout on your way in. It has the passage printed for you. But once you find it, please stand. We're going to read the passage together um, all at once. I want you to hear the story in its entirety Then, like I said, we'll talk a little bit about shame and then come back and take a look at this passage a little bit more closely. But beginning um, in verse 36 all the way through verse 50 of Luke chapter 7, it says this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. 
When the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this that even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Okay, go ahead and have a seat. Now, there is a picture that um, maybe some of you have seen on the internet. I'm not sure if you've seen it before. There is a picture on the internet. It's quite funny. It's a picture of a guy, and actually I brought it for you. It's a picture of a guy who's showing off a tattoo that he has. And the tattoo that he's showing off on his chest, I don't know if you can read it, it says, no regrets. No regrets. <laughs> he has it tattooed across his chest. But of course, if you look closely, you see that he's misspelled Regrets. So it's, it's humorous, and there's memes out there about it because uh, there's just something there that's just so humorous because no regrets. Well, maybe, maybe just one letter kind of regret on this decision, if nothing else, right? But it's, it's one of those things that, um, you know, that's easy to say, I have no regrets in life. But the reality is most of us have things in our life that we do regret, There's things in our life that we bump up against. There's things that we do, things that we've said that we would love to take back. Ways that we have acted so selfishly that it just pushes people away. And it's damaged relationships. We all have those kinds of things. And with that kind of regret comes this, this concept that the Bible speaks about, which is both guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. And these two things, they really travel together in the Bible and they travel together in our lives as well. So what I want to do before we look at the passage a little more closely is just frame just this, this concept of, of guilt and shame and, and talk just a little bit about it because I think it can be helpful as we look at it together. Now it's complicated, um, this relationship between guilt and shame, but I do think it's important that we, we address it so that we can understand and really move forward with hope in Jesus as we face shame in our lives. So let me just give you a couple things. If you're a note taker, you're welcome to take notes on this. But the first one is this. The the reality is that the guilt in the Bible is a condition. Guilt is a condition. Guilt in the Bible, when it talks about it, it's a a condition that we have. So it's a verdict that comes against us. When we do something um, that is, we can have uh, guilt, by the way, is a condition against God or against other people. So against God, when uh, we um, worship things above him, that's called idolatry. When we take something good and make it the great thing and we push God aside, that's uh, a guilt. We are guilty of idolatry in that moment. So there's a guilt, a condition that we have before God. But if we 
find ourselves in a position where we're stealing from someone, then we are in a condition, a guilt condition uh, against that person because we've stole from them. So guilt can be before God, before others, but the Bible talks about guilt and it talks about it as a condition. Now, um, the other thing then is shame. So what, what is shame and how does that connect? How do those two things work together? So shame is this. Shame is an emotion. Shame is an emotion. It's a painful emotion. And it's not, won't be a surprise to you that oftentimes shame accompanies guilt. That we, we feel shame, uh, this feeling, as a result of the condition, the guilt that we have in our life. And that, that everyone at some point maybe has felt that sense of shame, that sinking feeling that I've done something wrong and I feel bad. This emotion that comes over you as a result of your guilty condition. I remember this very vividly um, when I was young, probably maybe the, one of the first memories of real shame over guilt in my life. I remember I went to the grocery store with my mom. I think it was Fred Meyer's, something like that. But I remember as a kid going to Fred Meyer, my brothers and I, um, you know, she was doing some shopping. She said, okay, you guys can go look in the toy section or you can go look in the, you know, the, the other sections and I'll, we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll come over and find you and we'll check out um, and, and leave from there. And I remember being in that section of toys and then oh there's the sporting goods section next to it and and I remember going to the sporting goods section and I'd just been learning to fish with my grandfather and I'm like oh man look at all this cool like fishing tackle and all this stuff and I I was certain I would oh it just it just was like I felt like a fish just being lured in you know what I mean it was like it was just like that whole thing it's like a flashy things I'm like ooh flashy stuff you know that's exactly what a fish feels right that's temptation right there and I see these these new uh this fishing tackle and I'm thinking oh man I wish I had that so what did I do I took it I did I grabbed it put it in my pocket and I'm like no one saw me. Pretty good. I'm going to take this home. I got some new fishing tackle. Pretty great, right? And then I get to this, you know, where I'm hanging out. All of a sudden, mom comes. And mom says, hey, Scott, how are you doing? All of a sudden, I'm like, she knows. She knows. How does she know? Somehow she knows. And I have this thought. I'm just like, certain she knows. She knows. I had this, this overwhelming sense of shame that came over me. I, initially, I, right be, just before that, I was like, man, I'm good. I just totally slid that thing in my pocket. No one knows. No guilt. Nothing. All of a sudden, I see mom. Whew, shame. I just was like, this emotion just came over me. I just shoplifted. I'm in trouble. I'm going to go to jail. I mean, I was, re- I was convinced of all of that. And so I confessed, oh, mom, I'm guilty. I took this. And all because of this emotion, the same. So this is, this is a feeling, an emotion that comes over us, oftentimes accompanied, right, by that sense of my condition, I'm guilty. I've done something wrong. Those things oftentimes go together, which is the third thing that really we see. Shame is often provoked. Shame is often provoked. That is, we feel shame oftentimes when other people find out or it's public or something, we come up against something and all of a sudden like, ooh, I feel ashamed. I, I kind of, or that sense of I want to hide this because now I don't want people to know or someone's pointing out something. It's that moment when I saw my mom, there was this, this moment of like, provocation, all of a sudden I am guilty. It's this great story of King David. You know that after he, he, he sinned with Bathsheba, he was living in guilt, and then Nathan the prophet comes and 
tells him this story, and David's like, oh man, that, the person in this story, you know, he needs to die. And then Nathan points at David and says, you are that man. And all of a sudden, that shame overwhelms him, that feeling, that sense of guilt, and he's able to address it. So there's times when shame provokes that sense of guilt. Um, and it sometimes doesn't happen until it's public or, or we somehow or it's found out. In 2019, many of you remember the the college admissions scam, that whole scandal of the college admissions, when the, there's wealthy celebrities who were caught uh, in this college admission scandal. And then some of them, of course, were like, oh, I'm not guilty. Some said, oh, I am guilty. And one of them in particular, I, they made a statement um, after the, after the, the this scandal kind of came out and they were named and in that moment uh, made a statement. And this is a statement from Felicity Huffman. And she made this remarkable statement. This is what she's said as things became public, as, as these charges were brought against her. She said this, I am pleading guilty to the charge brought against me by the United States Attorney's Office. I am in full acceptance of my guilt and with deep regret and shame over what I have done. I accept full responsibility for my actions and will accept the consequences that stem from those actions. I am ashamed of the pain that I have caused my daughter, my family, my friends, my colleagues, and the educational community. I want to apologize to them, and especially I want to apologize to the students who work hard every day to get into college, and to their parents who make tremendous sacrifices to support their children and do so honestly. What an incredible statement. What an incredible statement. There is this condition of guilt. All of a sudden, it's public, and she, there's this shame part aspect. But then through that, there's this sense of, okay, I admit it. This is it. And there's, she, she makes this great statement. So there's this feeling that comes over us. This shame can oftentimes, it, it can be, and, and maybe even needs to be at times, uh, provoked in some way. So just c- carefully saying that. Now, verse 4. Uh, sorry, the, uh, the set fourth thing is that shame can fail to be initiated. There are times when shame can fail to be initiated. That is, we uh, are guilty, but we feel no shame. And there's times and there's, there's moments when people in extreme ca- cases feel, uh, have real and true guilt, but they feel no shame. And that part, of, part of that really we would classify as psychopathic, that you have this guilt but have no shame whatsoever that it's a, it's a really a psychopathic scenario. Now, that's an extreme case, but there's other ways that we do that. And oftentimes, we are guilty but don't feel the shame. It's not activated or initiated um, because of oftentimes what other people are telling us, that we find ourselves in a position of living in this guilty condition, but other people are saying, you're okay. It's all right. You know, you're in a spot where you're, um, you're involved in... Um, sexual activity, uh, uh, behavior outside of marriage, and your friends know that, and your friends are saying, it's okay, we affirm it. As long as it makes you happy, it's all right. Newsflash, it's not. You're still guilty. Even if they're saying, hey, you're fine, and you go, I'm fine. There's this sense of, okay, there's a, there's a real condition there. And at times it can be failed to be uh, initiated. It's just important to recognize that. The fifth one is this, that shame can be falsely provoked. And this is very important that we understand and very important that we get, that it can be falsely provoked in our life. And oftentimes we have shame that comes over us and it's, and it's, it's, it's because someone points out some shortcoming in our life or because of some social 
awkwardness or some challenge we have, but it has nothing to do with guilt in our life. It's just a sense of shame that someone puts over you and puts on you. And it's, it can be falsely provoked in your life. And as a result of that, many of us are stuck and we can get stuck in this cycle of shame. Not that I've done bad, but I am bad. And there's this sense that can overwhelm us in the midst of um, living through life. I'll just give you a very simple example. When I was in high school, I, was, um, I swam competitively. Um, but going into the sport, I really wasn't very good. And I remember my parents, um, uh, we, we kind of got, got, got me signed up to be a part of a club team so we could, I could swim year-round and I could improve and be ready for the high school uh, swimming season. And part of this club, they, they do, uh, you know, competitions, and so the whole club went to a, a, a meet to swim, and the, somebody didn't show up on our team for the relay race that we were supposed to, you know, win so that we could, you know, beat all the other club teams. Someone didn't show up, so the coach comes to me and says, Scott, I need you to fill in and, pl- and, and race in this relay. And I remember saying to my coach, Coach, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I am just, I'm so new to this. This isn't even a stroke I'm very familiar with. You do not want to use me in this race. The coach's like, nope, we need you. We're going to fill in. We're going we're to win this thing. We need, that, we need a, that, that fourth person for this relay. You're in. Well, I got pressured into it, of course. It's my coach. I got to do it. I, do, I go in the relay, and I was the, the first person up because they thought, okay, put the slow guy in first, and by, hopefully by the other, you know, the other great swimmers can like, catch up, um, and really we would be able to take this thing in the end. Now, what, was, what they didn't know was how bad I really was. <laughs> and so I'm at the starting blocks, and everyone does these beautiful dives. I like belly flop. So goggles fly off. I'm like trying to like find them. I'm drowning, hyperventilating, and I'm like, I end up doggy paddling, okay? <laughs> Literally doggy paddling because I can't see. I was, I was so anxious, I start to hyperventilate so I can't breathe, and I'm just doing this at a, at a club swim meet. I'm sure that all the other teams were like going, oh, what's going on? And my team was so embarrassed because it wasn't just that I got lapped by one, one, the next person, but it was like two people in that lapped me by the time I finished. Really, actually, probably by the time I finished, most teams were in the buses ready to go home. You know what I mean? That's, that's pretty much how it felt like. Now, as I'm getting on the bus with my team, um, I felt what? Tremendous amount of shame, right? Was I guilty? Had I done something wrong? No. But I felt shame, right? Because I just, I didn't meet the mark. I didn't, <laughs> I, I, I was, it, it just pointed out this, I'm not good enough. And this, this overwhelming sense of shame came over me. And again, this kind of shame can come in lots of different ways, a statement, uh, a moment, uh, a, a social interaction. And we can have this sense of overwhelming sense of shame that is falsely provoked in our life. But we hold on to those things from those moments and we carry them forward and can be very crippling in our life. And so it's just important for us to recognize that and see that. And now um, let's go to the passage and we'll look at it and we'll see how, how this, help, this framework can maybe help us as we look at this passage together. So verse 36 is where it starts. It says this, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. So Jesus is having a meal with the Pharisee. 
And the Pharisee, we know later from verse 40, that his name is Simon. And now, just, I'll just say this. There are lots of Simons in the Bible. In fact, there's nine different Simons that you'll read about in the Bible. Two are apostles. Um, and so there's lots of Simons. This is Simon the Pharisee who invites Jesus over um, to have dinner with him. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute. Why is Jesus having dinner with Pharisees? Because at this time in Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees were very hostile to him. If you are here last week, you know that Pharisees were piling up to come and catch Jesus and to you know, trap him and to catch him in something he's saying because they wanted to take him down. That hostility has not changed. It's only amplified by this time. And so the question is, well, why is Jesus hanging out with Pharisees? And the answer is this. The same love that Jesus had that caused him to enter into a hostile world is the same love that motivates him to go and have dinner in a, in a hate-filled house. That's the, that's the thing. It's his love for people, even love for people who are unloving back or, or filled with hostility. He wants to reach the, this, this uh, Pharisee and hopefully give him an opportunity to turn and the friends that around him to turn and, and accept and receive um, his love that he has for them. So he goes to have dinner with them. He went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined to the table. So he reclines at the table. Just, I just got to set the scene for you so you know what's going on. It'll make more sense as we read on a little bit later. So he reclines at the table. At this time, in, 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 their, in the Jewish culture, um, they would have meals. This is a great banquet um, that he was having. The Pharisees oftentimes or wealthy, and so this was a great banquet uh, that he's having with Jesus, and they would have a table that's very low to the ground. They didn't sit in chairs at that time, so they reclined. That is, there was pillows around the table, typically in a U-shape, pillows arrayed, pillows arrayed around it, and they would recline on those pillows on their left arm, and they would eat with their right. And so their, lay, their bodies are laid out, they're reclining, and they're eating at this low-level table. That's the scene that we have here in this, in this, in this banquet picture. Now, verse 40, 30, 37 says this. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. So, a woman in the town who lived a sinful life. It's interesting. Um, Luke is very careful with how he talks about this woman. He, he, uh, he, it's his, this, by saying she lived a sinful life, it's his delicate way of saying, you know, she's a prostitute. But he's trying to care for her and honor her, in, in, yet at the same time say, share what the reality is. So she, there's a woman who's um, lived a sinful life, that is, she's, she's a prostitute. She's learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar. You might be thinking to yourself, how did this woman get into this party? If the Pharisee's hosting a party for Jesus with all his friends, how does this woman get there? Well, in this culture, it would not be uncommon for those who are wealthy to want to show off how wealthy they are. So they'd kind of have an open door policy, right? They'd be wanting to have a big banquet, but, oh, looky loose could come in and say, whoa, man, this guy, look at his house, look at how opulent he ha- you know, it is and how wealthy he is. And so they like the attention, the praise of others. So they'd had this open-door policy a bit, and at the same time, when wealthy people would banquet or eat, it's just inevitable that people who are poor and down and out would be looking for scraps, looking for opportunities to get something, uh, something tossed to them, something that they might hold on to. So that's also uh, what's happening here in this time. So she comes to this house. She came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. 
She comes with an alabaster jar. An alabaster jar is a, a, just a, a stone jar, um, and in the jar is perfume. This is what she comes with, and this is what she has. In a certain sense, if she's, um, in the, she's a prostitute, this would be kind of the tool of her trade. This would, be, this would come and go, go along with it in a certain sense, because we know perfume in, in our culture, just as it was in their culture, comes with it this sense of sensuality, Right? When you see the, the perfume ads, what do you see? You see some woman all dolled up, and she's walking around, and then she holds up the jar of perfume. Chanel, right? That's the, that's the whole thing. How'd I do, right? It makes you want to, somehow it makes you want to go out and buy it. Now, the ad, the ad does not have some woman who's just changed the tire on her truck and saying, Hey, try some channel. It's really great, right? She's, that's, not, that's not the image. The portrayal, of course, is more sensual, and that's what sells. That's kind of what goes along with it in the same way. It's this woman who's this, she's really, she's saying, this is what I have. I'm coming, and I'm going to bring it, and I'm going to use it to honor and, and um, to Jesus. And then, so verse 38, here's what it says. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So um, she comes behind him. She's weeping. Um, she's wetting her feet with her tears. Some of you are thinking, yucky. Um, but that's, this, was, this, was, this is all she had. And you, you feel the emotion here. And then she's wiping them with her hair. And she kissed them. She pours the perfume on him. So again, she's, she's showing him honor and respect. And we know, again, kind of the condition where she's at because a Jewish woman... Uh, who was married at this time, would have the head covering. They would not have their hair out. So again, the, the hair down, no head covering, just kind of points to the, the kind of life that she uh, lives and has been living. So then the next verse says this, 39. When the Pharisee who, had, Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Do you feel the shame that he's pouring on over her? And it's not just that he's pouring shame on this woman. And you notice this woman, she's a sinful person. And so he's just seeing her and just utter shame, utter disgust, despising her. She doesn't belong here. And she doesn't, what is she even doing here? But it's not just shame on her. He's pouring shame on Jesus too, isn't he? Because who is this guy? I mean, if he was a true prophet, he would know who's touching her, and he would, he would push her away. That's the, the sense of what's going on. I mean, a true prophet would know these kinds of things. Clearly, this guy's an idiot, and he doesn't, he doesn't get it. He's out of touch. And um, so he's saying, what, who, who, what kind of a guy is this? Now, so he's pouring shame on both the woman and Jesus. And look what happens next in verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon. I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Now, it's so interesting. This would be that moment when Jesus knows what's going on. Obviously, he's addressing Simon. And shame is one of those things where your pressure and the, the kind of that public setting makes us want to like, uh, well, we'll just do what the crowd wants me to do. It would have been way easier for Jesus to push her away and not deal with the shame of the host and all of the guests. It would have been easier for him to say, I'm not going to deal with that shame because this is awkward and uncomfortable. Everyone's looking at me. They're looking at me shamefully. Jesus could have dismissed the woman, taken care of it, moved forward. And 
given into that pressure, the shame pressure in that environment. But he doesn't. Instead, he pushes it back to Simon, and that's the really fascinating part of the twist of, 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 of this story. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And just notice this. He says, tell me, teacher. Anytime in the Gospels when you hear someone call Jesus teacher, it's sort of his, the polite way of saying, I don't really believe you're Lord right? That's the whole concept. Like, yeah, teacher, you, you have some things to say, but I'm re- you're not really Lord and, and, and Master. So that's, that's the kind of idea. He's, he's really saying, I'm not really, I don't see you or submit to your authority in my life. Then verse 41, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. So the denarii, denarius at that time was um, like a day's wage, um, so it was, you just, you know, do the math. It's one guy has 20% of uh, maybe a year's salary. The other one, uh, almost two years of a year's salary that they owed. So uh, the discrepancy there is 50, 10 times more. The guy who owes 500, of course. So then verse 42, neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Don't you love Jesus' question? He says, okay, there's two guys. One that owes 10 times more than the other. Both have their debts forgiven. I have a question for you. Who's going to be more grateful? Who's going to love that, that more? Um, and then verse 43, you see the response. Simon replied, uh, I suppose the one with the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. So you hear the, the hesitation there. The Simon's like, oh, man. Jesus going somewhere, and I don't know where, and I'm, I'm feeling this. And of course, he's exactly right. Jesus is like just pushing, pressing in on him with this question, who's going who's gonna to love him more? It's like, I suppose. Of course he knows. He says, uh, the one that has the bigger debt forgiven, Jesus says, you have judged correctly. You got it, Simon. Verse 44. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. So he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? It's interesting. He said, do you see her? Not just your labels, not just her past, not just all the things that you, all the shame that you'd like to pour on her, but do you see her? Do you see past all that stuff and see her? That's what he's pressing in on. It's such a powerful statement. He earlier, the, Simon said, oh, this woman, you know, if he would know this woman is a sinner, he just stops and says, do you really see this woman? Do you see her past all of the shame that you're dumping on her? Of course, Jesus doesn't press her or put shame upon her. He actually elevates her. And, he, and then he goes into, let's do a little comparison here. Um, Simon, let's compare you and this woman for a moment. And of course, Simon is thinking to himself, oh, this is not going to go well for me at this, at this time. And of course, he's exactly right. It's not going to go well. He says, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. It was custom at this time. If someone had traveled a distance and had come, especially for a banquet, you would at least have someone, maybe a, a servant in the home, have a, a basin of water. They would dip the feet and wash the feet with a towel. That, that was just customary. You saw Jesus do that in John chapter 13 for the disciples. This was just a, a common courtesy that happened. That common courtesy was not given to Jesus when he came to this banquet. He points it out. And so he says, but this woman, she's using her tears. She doesn't have a towel. She's using her hair. And so it's, it's strike one, Simon. Do you feel it? 
Strike one. Now, strike two. Let's look at it together. It says this. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. So it was customary. Again, in this culture, just like it is in our culture, we give a handshake to somebody. That's a normal expected greeting. In their culture, it would be expected that you would give a kiss, a kiss on the cheek. Simon did not do that with Jesus when he came to the banquet. This woman has not stopped kissing his feet, he says. So that's strike two, Simon. Now the next one. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Oil on the head, there were... as best of my knowledge, I could, they, they could see that they would take oil and they would drop a couple of drops of oil on the head. That oil would be used in a certain sense to re-moisturize your skin or, or whatever. It was, it was a sign of, again, honor to a guest who's coming. That was not offered to Jesus, but instead this woman takes what she has, um, really what all she has from her background and her experience, this perfume, and she pours it on his feet. Strike three, Simon. Do you feel it? You feel, feel what Jesus is doing here with Simon in this conversation? Then notice the response. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. That is, Simon, you're not seeing me for who I am because you haven't even come to acknowledge your own sins, that you don't even know you're guilty. That's the whole point. Remember that, that shame, guilt thing where sometimes that shame, if, if you're in an environment where everyone's saying, you're fine, you're okay. And of course, the Pharisees, they're like, there's nothing on our part. It's all Jesus. They couldn't see their own guilt, the condition that they're in, that they have sin in their life. And so they kept pointing the finger out instead of stopping and looking in. And, and Jesus is saying, I, I've, I've put this in front of you. Strike one, strike two, strike three. In a certain sense, Simon, you were trying to shame me and this woman, but you need to feel this emotion too in the hopes that they would, he would then come to terms with the condition that he's guilty. Jesus is giving him an opportunity to turn, to say, I need to be forgiven as well and so that I could respond in love. But again, you're not able to love if you don't realize you need to re- what you need to receive from Jesus, which is forgiveness. And so he's, he's pointing that out to him, again, inviting him to turn. Verse 48, Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Jesus looks at her and he looks at her not like other men have looked at her with lust, but with he looks at her with love and he says, listen, I want to forgive your sins. And it's it's a beautiful statement. And now everyone who's been watching this woman going, who's this woman? Now they're saying, who's this guy? Verse 49, the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? So now they're going, whoa. This guy is talking about forgiving sins? This is God kind of stuff. Of course, yes, Jesus is God. Then verse 50, Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. So powerful. He uses her actions to kind of point out the, the, the difference between her and um, Simon, but he really ultimately points to her faith as her point of, of forgiveness and peace, and the, the reason for her deep uh, actions that she, that she has. So it's a beautiful thing. Now, this is a beautiful story, and in it, you see this, um, this moment where Jesus uh, doesn't want to shame this woman, but he wants to forgive her. 
that he wants to care for her. When there's other people who are provoking that shame, falsely provoking it, Jesus wants to come along the other side. So the question is, how do we respond? Um, What are the appropriate ways we respond to shame in our life? And so let me just quickly give you five ways that we can appropriately respond to shame. The first one is this. We We respond before God by repenting. We respond before God by repenting. If you look at the timeline of Jesus' ministry, just before Jesus has this banquet moment with Simon the Pharisee, he'd been teaching, and he had been teaching people, and he said, come, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It was this great invitation. I wonder if this woman was in the crowd that day, and she felt it. She said, I am weary. I am burdened. I'm coming to Jesus, and she placed her faith in Christ. And all of a sudden now, that night, she's finding Jesus to say, thank you for your forgiveness. She's coming to express her love. I, we don't know that for sure, but I wonder if that's it, that there's this turning. Because before God, when we recognize that we, this emotion that leads to guilt, and we recognize, yeah, the life I've lived, the decisions I've made, I need to turn. And I can't do it on my own. Because if I could have by now, I would have. But I can't. So God, I need to come to you and ask for your help. And forgive this, this repentance. That's a biblical word. It just means to turn and say, God, I can't. You can. Please help me. I'm coming to you. I need your forgiveness. I'm turning away from this. I'm turning to you. And that's the whole point. That's an appropriate reaction to shame. Then, uh, second thing. Before others, when we feel shame, to, re- to, to restore that relationship. Maybe before others, you do feel ashamed of how you, what you said or how you treated someone, You've, this, this emotion that floods over you, I was wrong. And, and when you, that moment, you go to the person and restore the relationship. And the best way to restore the relationship is by simply saying, I'm sorry. Not, I'm sorry if, or not, I'm sorry if you think this, but just simply, I'm sorry. That's what connects to people's soul. It's not the, here's all the conditions and all the reasons and all the, the explanations. No, here's what I did. It was wrong, and I'm sorry. You just come honestly apologize. You restore when you feel that shame, and, 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 and that's what people respond to, and it's so, and so important to get. Then third, third one is this. Before a lie, reject. Before a lie, reject. That is, there are moments when we are going to feel <clears throat> or hear certain lies that lead to a false sense of guilt, Certain lies that you are not good enough. Again, it's that shortcoming thing. Like, oh, if I, if I didn't perform well or if I'm I, not good enough in these ways, then we feel a sense of shame and we can buy that lie. And I know that many people here have that shame message that comes to you as a lie so often that you're not good enough, that you're unlovable, that you're, you're just a, you mess up. Some of you are coming from a, a shame-based home. And you grew up hearing, you're not good enough. You grew up hearing, if people saw this, what would they think? So get it together, hold the lie, don't, don't let anything out, hold it all in. And it's a shame-based existence. And some of you are carried that forward into adulthood and still struggle with it. And so I might just add this, that for some of you here to face the lies of the enemy, the accuser of shame that's false in your life, false shame, you may need to see a counselor to help you through it, to find someone who says, hey, I, I, I need help because I'm so stuck. I need some professional guidance to help me deal with these lies and replace them with God's truth. 
That's what you may need. And for some of us, you, some of you just need to recognize that you may need more, more, more help to go through to get to a point where you can reject those lies. Reject the lies that you've been fed, you've been told, the things that you're held on to, that you bring up about yourself that are so debilitating and, 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 uh, in your life. So then a fourth one is this. Before a weak conscience, rem- conscience remember. Before a weak conscience Remember, and this is important because sometimes we just have a weak conscience and we just think, think to ourselves, I'm just, we have this, this sense, ah, I don't know if I've done something wrong, but I just feel like I'm wrong. And you have this, this, these moments of your consciousness is, is, again, that's that lie coming in, feeding you that you're not good enough, that you, you maybe you've, you've done some wrong things, but you are wrong that you are bad. And, um, and, and even after you've been forgiven, you can find yourself feeling those things and those shame messages come up. And so just mention this, you know, in Romans 8, chapter 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You need to remember that. We need to remember it. If you've been forgiven, you've confessed, you've forgiven, you've you experienced God's forgiveness in your life, um, we need to remember that. Again, let me say it. There is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is important. We need to remember it when we have those weak conscience moments. Then the fifth thing is this. Um, before Jesus, we need to rejoice. Before Jesus, we need to rejoice. In Hebrews 12, um, verse 2, it says this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him... Uh, endured the cross, scorned the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. It says in this verse that Jesus scorned the shame. This is what Jesus did for us. He took our shame away when he went to the cross. It's a beautiful thing. So we rejoice in his work on our behalf, that through, through Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven, that our guilt can be uh, removed because of his sacrifice, his substitutionary death, but then also he doesn't just want to take the condition away, he wants to take the emotions that lag behind it. Our own sense of feelings of shame that sometimes just this complicated relationship we hang on to. Jesus not only wants to take our guilt away, he wants to remove our shame. This is the powerful work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. There's a story that I'll just end with. It's just a, a powerful picture, a story that I heard about a, a guy who got invited to eat dinner at a very wealthy person's home. And in this wealthy person's home, you know, it's one of those dinners, those banquets where there's more forks and spoons than you know what to do with. You don't know which one am I supposed to take or what. So you watch everybody else and it was kind of those kinds of scenarios. And this guy has never been to something like that. So he just, you know, they're all forks. They all work, right? Just pick one, go. That's kind of the, the mindset. And in this, in this dinner environment, they brought out um, uh, finger bowls. I don't know if you've ever been in a, in a meal for a fancy meal where there's finger bowls, but the finger bowl had a, a, a lemon in it, and um, this guy just assumes, oh, it's just a drink, right? So he takes the finger bowl, which is, of course, meant for washing your fingers. He takes it, and he drinks it. Now, everyone at the table is just going, look into this guy. They're horrified, but the host, the wealthy man who was hosting the dinner, saw it, immediately picks up his finger bowl and starts drinking it. And guess what? All the other guests did too. (laughs) Because there's something powerful. He says, hey, you're feeling shame. I want to take it away. 
And so what I'll do is I'll take that too. And I want to take your shame away. And that's what Jesus does for us on the cross. He wants to take our shame away. You don't have to live stuck. But we can have hope. We can move forward because we have a God who said, I've done it for you. I went to the cross to address the condition of guilt, but also to help you move forward and to be free from the emotion of shame that we so often hold on to. Let's take a moment and let's thank Jesus for that. God, we do come before you and we just thank you for your, your work on the cross on our behalf. And I just know that there are people here this, this morning who uh, frequently find themselves feeling feelings of shame, who have messages that they've been told or have repeated, who have self-condemnation that have constantly comes up. I, God, I pray that this morning you would remind them of your work on their behalf, that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that through faith in your work, they're set free. And I pray that you would give them a sense of that freedom today. Lord, for others of us, we just need to stop and we just need to say again, thank you to rejoice in your work on our behalf. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son Jesus to take away our sin, to give us freedom, and not just step in for one moment, but that you're a God who wants to walk with us every moment and continue to remind us of your mercy, your grace, and your love and the way that you see us. We thank you for that, Lord, in your name. Amen.